Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. And at that point, it indicated to me that the sins of the Father are now the sins of the Son, because as an elected official there, he can't acknowledge that I exist, because he's enslaved by his narrative. This program features the work of 2018 writer Daniel Atkinson. He spoke with curator Damon Arundel about his work. So, please tell us about your project and also why you sought out the Jack Straw Writers Program. So, what I'm trying to do is to become a better writer in that I uh, was not a writer but a fan of good writing, uh, James Baldwin, Ellison, uh, folks like Judy Bloom and such, when I was real little, man, I used mm-hmm. to love the way she'd tell a story and she could mm-hmm. just pull you in. Um, and what I was trying to do was to give food for thought mm-hmm. for meaningful social change, mm-hmm. or at least to question our uh, history from a cause and effect sort of a standpoint, mm-hmm. basically to get people to think why do we need a 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment to the Constitution when we could just apply the original rule? The fact that we need three new rules shows that it was originally not intended for people like me. And we can address this by just applying the original rule. Right. But you can't legislate hearts and minds, mm-hmm. nor are we willing to engage with the discomfort of the learning process because everything gets thrown into flux. Yes. So I wanted to get involved with the Jack Straw Writing Program because I knew that in this environment, I would be forced to embrace the discomfort of the learning process, particularly mm-hmm. as it is for me to write about things that I'm emotionally attached to. Mm-hmm. And so I was hoping that Jack Straw and the people I would interact with in that process would help me to deal with that mm. in a way to where I can become better about being unapologetically black, which is why the the biography project that I'm working on now is does that with mm-hmm. uh George Walker, one of the first black superstars, comedian, philanthropist, one of the forefathers of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was part of a duo because that's how it had to be in comedy in those days. Black comedians couldn't speak directly to the audience until the mid-1950s, like Timmy Moreland, uh, Nipsey Russell, Mm -hmm. and eventually Dick Gregory. Uh, George Kirby as well, his impressionist. And uh, my guy, George Walker, who has never had a biography written about him, was the straight man and the model for sport and life. But his whole thing was taking his liberation as opposed to waiting for it to come, more of the W.E.B. Du Bois variety. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't make himself available for conspicuous consumption, he's been completely erased. And on the flip side, his partner, Bert, was a brilliant actor, brilliant comedian, brilliant dancer. Um, Because his character was the blackface lovable loser, Mm -hmm. he was allowed to participate and was given honorary whiteness, much the same way Jackie Robinson was and O.J. Simpson was. And uh, those are the folks I admire. So what I ultimately like to, I would like to become the kind of elder that I had as a kid, but have been institutionally prevented from becoming Mm -hmm. officially. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I can find a way to straddle that knife's edge between satire and mockery, that way I can do it. And I've seen people do it, and I really admire their ability to do it. And I have been going back to the drawing board, the woodshed, over and over again to figure out how to hone this mm-hmm. as I move through this temporary existence that we have. Mm. So you mentioned in regards to George Walker that his existence within 
this realm, like it's it's gone. So where did you find his story? Well, as as a kid, I really enjoyed uh, Victrolas, seeing how they worked mechanically, and I fell in love with the music that was played on them. Uh, my parents made sure that we were educated on Black history, all the things outside of February, you know, to know that the rubber sole from the shoe, the stoplight, the gas mm-hmm. mask, uh, all kinds of things that have made life a lot more efficient. Fountain pen, street sweeper. Mm-hmm. And uh, consequently, in dealing with all this old stuff and being raised next door to my grandparents, who were both children of sharecroppers, I fell in love with the record from that era, from the records, from all the recordings, all the kinds of stuff. And so just started collecting that stuff. And then I never really learned to read music all that well. So everything I played was by ear. Hmm. So by the time I was gigging age, I played like a guy who had been dead 30 years. (laughs) But... um, Upon completion of the, uh, my doctorate in ethnomusicology at UW, I was having trouble finding an institutional home. Mm-hmm. As I said before, I'm unapologetically black, which is a problem. But um, I ended up at the University of Kansas at the Kansas African Studies Center. Mm-hmm. It's George Walker's hometown. Uh-huh. And I knew enough about it. I'm like, oh, this is his hometown, and this is what Langston Hughes called his hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Langston Hughes' grandfather's uh, grocery store is still there on Massachusetts Street. Their houses are still there. I can go to all their graves. George Walker's buried there, as are Langston mm-hmm. Hughes' uh, grandparents. And just, um, I was supposed to be there to research and to teach and to facilitate scholarship and all these other things, but really I was hired to be diversity as opposed to do diversity, which was infuriating because I couldn't really engage and I had these skills and I could not bring to bear. And if I was, they were hampered severely. So rather than take my frustration out on my colleagues who had no idea what they were dealing with, I uh, just started to geek out on George and took in all the local information that I could find. And then I found that there was quite a bit of information that had never made it to the public eye because no one had really checked. Mm. I said, oh, there's more to this. So that was a little frustrating to me to see the level of sacrifice that these people put in because they knew that our future was brighter. Yeah. And they were willing to really to make, to take those risks. And I started learning more and more about George and saw more and more of myself mm-hmm. in him and his willingness to fight but use charisma where... He, he knew that there were certain parameters that were surrounding them, but at the same time, if he entertained white people, they would forgive him for surprising them with mm. black sovereignty. Wow. So I'm hoping that in giving voice to their experience, because it writes itself, mm-hmm. that I can encourage more younger people to go into the era that is pre-assimilation to see the sovereignty that was generated during Jim Crow mm-hmm. and to see how it's not too late to take it back to ritual. And it's not too late to rethink the fact that you are Afro-American and uh, get beyond February, get beyond what they hide from you or teach you in school and to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I do that. And that's why I did my dissertation work at the world's largest prison, a former slave plantation. That's why I make all kinds of weird sacrifices to further this idea. So I'm curious from a literary standpoint, who are you reading now that's that's inspiring you, that's that's catching your attention, or folks from a long time ago that still have your attention? I almost always return to Baldwin. Sonny's Blues, mm-hmm. Nobody Knows My Name, the his willingness to express outwardly his internal dialogue. You know, is it racism? 
that's making me think this way and act this way? Or is it my fear of racism that's making me think this way? I have to leave to figure out what it is that I want. And uh, more than Langston Hughes, who had a brilliant way of expressing a codified black experience that almost everybody could get down with because he had lived such an itinerant childhood all over in Mexico and all over the U.S., Baldwin synthesized it down into... You knew that it was his story. He wasn't telling everyone's story, but everyone can identify with his uniquely Afro-American experience. Right. Uh, Jesse Redmond Fawcett is another one because she was the lighter of two sisters, and she wrote a lot about that dynamic of being light-skinned because both my grandmothers could pass. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have, stu I have a lot of uh, cousins who can pass as well. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and those are things that aren't readily discussed. They'll say that we got native in us when only one in 28 really has mm -hmm. that option. And I know where it comes from mm -hmm. to be soulful, to be present in the moment, mm -hmm. to give what is needed selflessly. I would like to do that. I would like to be useful without feeling used, but it's difficult, mm -hmm. particularly in the West where people are not very honest with themselves and their intentions, yeah. which is why I always have this caveat when I lecture about Southern politics and Southern dynamics is that there's a respect for the way that they roll because much like a rattlesnake, they will telegraph their intent. Whereas in the Pacific Northwest and in California where I was raised, more often than not, it's a gingerbread house. Where I go in the oven, what comes out is a piping hot mulligan and they don't have to address the fact that their default MO is one of inequity. And uh, even when you preemptively express what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, with historical precedent, with an idea of what is possible, more often than not, they will have to save you from yourself and go to the default, which is inequitable. So people, when they read what I write, they always say that it's got this anger to it and this tense to it. Mm -hmm. But what I always want them to say, well, it's not anger as that's ruled by emotion, I am the Credible Hulk. I have matched my vocabulary with my rage. Can you at least give me that? Hmm. Though it's discomforting to you, that doesn't make it wrong. Right. So this is the first time I've been able to write about it without having to take it back to 1619 and drag people forward. Hmm. I can just, it's all in there right. for those who feels it knows it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, that's, you know, that's your problem. Right. I'm going to leave you with one last question. And I think it's it's where you left off regarding the critique or criticism of so much anger in your work. Where is the love in your work? I think the love in my work is the love in the work is what fuels the anger. Because I know that there is so much more that is out there and we are not recognizing our full potential mm. because anyone can do this. Anyone can think this way. You just have to be able to submit to something that's larger and you've got some validation to get from the masters, the people who practice it. You've got to laugh and cry with them mm. as opposed to making them cry and recording it and making money off it. You know, right. I made it, somebody else done sold it. And... I remember seeing this on Cars with Coffee with uh, Jerry Seinfeld where he said that, you know, the kids I don't worry about are the ones who skate. And I knew exactly where he was going mm -hmm. because you have to fail so much. So every trick that you learn is a life lesson. Yeah. Those are the kids I don't worry about. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I just wish that there's more of those because when I'm old, I, I want people who think critically and have charisma and candor who don't just chop things up. Because, uh, man, as messed up as the 20th century was, we did some really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And everything is derived from that now without having any context. Yeah. And um, especially now that if you do something that is worthwhile but not conspicuously consumable, you see with the current administration, you just control Z all of that. Right. I just hate to see kids, children with charisma, with intelligence, with talent, adopt a nihilist way of thinking to where they they empower socio-apathy to become hustlers, mm. dealers, pimps, people who have no value for their own lives so they can't value anyone else's. Right. And they use their intelligence for short-term gain, even if it's just the, the, beyond the tip of their nose. Mm-hmm. I want them to think big, to know that they can accomplish something. But when you see how we are treated institutionally, I don't really have a comeback for them. When they're like, why should I work so hard? You got a PhD and you broke. What do I say? Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to say to them. Like, I, I, I ooh, hmm. I think the answers might be sharing your stories. I hope so. And this, this, this might be a way to do it and... Um, in doing this work on George Walker, uh, because Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote uh, the the script and the, well, wrote the lyrics to most of the songs in their first hit on Broadway, In Dahomey, I have been delving deeply into Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who, uh, you know, for as far as like the militancy, the militancy or just the sovereignty, you know, you got Dunbar and you got McKay, and then you get into Wright and Baldwin and all those cats, and they expand. But uh, Dunbar was one of the early ones where they were still in the era of begging humanity, mm-hmm. where he has to hide it in dialect. Yeah. But things like We Wear the Mask, or Swing Along, which mm-hmm. was like the refrain in Into Homie, Swing Along, Chillin', Swing Along the Lane, Lift Your Head and Your Heels Mighty High, Swing Along, Chillin', Ain't Gonna Rain, The Sun's Red Like a Rose Up in the Sky, Come Along Mandy, Come Along Sue, White Folks Watching, Seeing What You Do, White Folks Jealous When You Walk in Two by Two, So Swing Along, Chillin', Swing Along. Now we'll hear a selection from Daniel's live reading. You know she half devil. Which half, I don't know. It's what my grandfather once said about his wife, my grandmother, Corrine Grigsby Jefferson, when trying to explain her legendary volatility. It wasn't until years later that I understood the complexity behind what he had said to me. Yes, Grandma was volatile, partly because... She was a child of rape and therefore very fair-skinned, which presented a unique set of problems. Based on the Jim Crow rules of the day, despite looking white, she was institutionally black. In fact, just as black as Grandpa. And Grandpa was so black that I didn't know he had a mustache until it went gray. Let me give you a little, little context, right? <laughs> Okay, so being a child of rape that was never called rape, she had little recourse beyond her volatility. After all, it isn't paranoia if they really are after you. And as beautiful as Grandpa was, she was breathtaking, which only compounded her dilemma of having the stigma of blackness while personifying whiteness, the institutionally oppressive enemy. She was acknowledged by her white kinfolk only by their purposeful ignorance of her, and at the same time, She was the most convenient object of hate and desire by her black kinfolk, 
very few of whom ever treated her like family. She was not educated beyond the third grade, had few if any clothes, and was only given pot liquor to eat, resulting in malnutrition to such a degree that she lost all of her permanent teeth at a very young age. When her mother, Cinti Pearl Grigsby, brought a new man around, it was only a matter of time before he turned his attention towards Corrine for yet another rape, resulting in vicious reprisals because though Grandma Cinti Pearl was fair-skinned with good hair, Grandma Corrine was all that and more. To those with opportunity and without their humanity intact, she was young, ripe, high yellow fruit for the picking. So the family never openly discussed the conditions that made grandma the way that she was, quick to anger, stubborn to a fault, and seemingly enslaved by the fear that our existence was futile to the point of always expecting the sky to fall and to have her grandchildren stolen by white institutions to be rendered unrecognizable upon return. When I went away to college, she used to accuse me of fornicating and skiing on the water on a white stick. <laughs> I played a lot of music at night and I surfed. <laughs> so all I knew <laughs> was that grandma was half cocks because whenever one was within range during one of my summer visits to Cotton Valley in northern Louisiana where she was raised, one of my black cousins would inevitably say, hey cuz, them's one of yo people. Affirming that I was the blended one and like grandma, the object of ridicule. On top of being blended, I was a vegan and earning an advanced degree. <laughs> so just as in the wider world, my difference was deficient. And all despite the fact that even though I was the only one who went home out of my siblings and was doing my doctoral dissertation in Louisiana in an effort to help black people and was well on my way to becoming a certified specialist in black culture, but understandably, with my cousins like my grandmother, it was the source of my certification that was suspect. So I think here is where I'll get the telling because it's a lot better if I just tell it. So one summer, it just became too much. All that teasing and stuff, give me a horse, it's just been broken. So I fall in the high grass, get chiggers, all that sort of stuff. Um, so we're in my cousin's garage where he does some small engine repair and uh, goofing around, drinking some yak, smoking some herb, listening to some R&B, giggling, everything but the barbershop, right? And of course, we're giggling and talking and whatnot. City boy's holding his own as usual. Then all of a sudden, a tan truck comes creeping up the street, pulls into the driveway, and I can already see it happening. Hey, cuz, them's one of your people. It's Cat Cox, my grandmother's younger brother. And uh, he often comes over to my cousin Kenny Ray's house when he needs someone for an odd job, for some plastering, dig a hole, do all those sorts of things. And uh, of course, they're all teasing me and giggling and laughing. And uh, my cousin trots over to him and then he does some business with him, talks to him a little bit. And my cousin starts to come back. And I'm just so sick of it that, you know what? Today's the day I'm just going to get it done. So what I tend to do is to throw something up the flagpole to see who salutes. And usually it's, I'm the only one who's doing it. So my cousin starts to turn and he comes back. I trot out to the, to the truck. And I'm as I'm passing my cousin, he's got the... Like, what's about to go down? And I'm just like. 
So then he goes and sits down, and I can hear him all grumbling in the garage. And then I get up to the truck, and the first thing I notice is a shotgun sitting on the seat right next to him. I'm like, okay, heart's beating out of my chest. I'm already here. I got to do it. So I break out the hammer and the chisel, and I go to work. But before I can speak, I notice, wow, I'm related to this dude. He looks like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I mean, all the way down, a sheet of white. My great uncle. So I lean over and I say to him, hello, sir. Is your name Cat Cox? Yes. Your father's name was Ivory Cox. Yes. My grandmother's Corrine Grigsby. Her father, too, is Ivory Cox. That makes you her brother. That makes you my great uncle. And he gets to sort of look like, I'm like, oh, here it comes. Oh, it's cool, man. I'm here all the time. We love it here. I just want you to know that this is home for us. And we're doing quite well. There's a whole bunch of us, man. And so he sort of just relaxes a little bit. So then I got to crack another joke or two to get him to calm down, because I don't want to get shot, right? I'd like to meet my great uncle and not have to die to do it. And I have no idea what he's going to do, but I have to take that as a possibility just to keep myself safe. That's what we do. And so I get him to talk a little bit. We downshift into some polite southern small talk. I don't remember what I said, but he liked me enough to turn off the engine and get out in the August heat. Walked under a sycamore tree with me, and I remember making a joke about Zachariah, of course, because nothing makes southern people more happy than black people talking or singing about Jesus. <laughs> Disarmed him right away. Gives me, shakes my hand. Gives me a good Christian side hug. Like, okay, see how much further I can go with this. Pulled out my phone. Mind if I make a picture? My brothers would love this. And he freezes. And I don't think that's a very good idea. I hope you understand. And at that point, it indicated to me that the sins of the father are now the sins of the son. Because as an elected official there, he can't acknowledge that I exist because he's enslaved by his narrative. And even though I'm a relative of his with an advanced degree, never been to prison, doing all that I can in service of my nation beyond carrying a gun in a foreign country, he can't acknowledge that I exist. Which is what I kind of expected, but at the same time, I got it done because I, what really mattered was when I trotted back to the garage, my cousins freaked out. Are you crazy, smarty arty? Or proper niggers, another one. You trying to get killed? It's like, no, nah, man. You said he's my people. Now he's my people, so you got to come up with a new joke. <laughs> and they never made the joke again. And if he sees me, he goes the other way, which is kind of how I like it. <laughs> so, thank you all. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2018 curator of this program is Damon Arundel. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Ayesha Ubiatilaka, Daniel Gunther, and Joel Maddox. Narrator is Alyssa Keen, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Amy Rubin and Don Clement, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, 
the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. Thank you for listening. Thank you.